A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, Martin Lukacs. Jesse, how's it going? I'm all right. Uh, Martin, uh, environment reporter at The Guardian and author of the new book, The Trudeau Formula, Seduction and Betrayal in an Age of Discontent, joining us from Montreal. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. Martin, today we are going to talk about sexy hurricane headlines. Dorian relentlessly pounds Bahamas. Gross. Also, uh, Justin Trudeau's Malaysian ancestry. Who knew? You learned so much watching Netflix. Uh, once again, good to have you here. Thanks, Jesse. <laughs> this episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Vinnie Krieger, Stephen Berg, Brooke Alviano, Ben Gurr, Nick Silvani, Sarah Haberi, Bailey Bradshaw, and Darren Poppleton. I'm Darren Poppleton, a vocational teacher in Calgary, and I support Canada Land because the show provides the opportunity to hear voices that are not usually heard every day, as the usual criticism of media in this country is usually from extremes or the most status of status quo, not people who are having a generally cordial conversation while still calling each other and the powers that be out on their BS. Good evening. The intensity of Hurricane Dorian came into frightening focus tonight as the monster storm finally moved away from the Bahamas after unleashing its fury for 36 hours straight. We don't know, for instance, where my nephews are. Um, they're sending pictures. They're trying to get help. Some people are on top of their roof. Some people are in their roof. 
to, to the point where the water is to the roof. The level of devastation is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, there are no walls left at the airport. Uh, the runway field is, is now a debris field. You know, I hear a lot of people talk about rebuilding, and Bahamians always say, oh, we've gone through many hurricanes, and we always rebuild. But how do you rebuild when there is nothing left? Hey, Martin, like, I feel like when it comes to hurricanes and natural disasters, which happen more and more frequently, we kind of like move from not knowing how to cover the environment and climate change and covering it very infrequently to then like, oh, we know how to do this. We know how to handle, like, if if there's a flood outside your door, if a hurricane is going to destroy a city, that's what the news, like, you know, eyewitness breaking news knows how to do. And we move from from one extreme to the other and, and people call it disaster porn. Do you, do you like that term? What does that mean to you? Well, I think it's accurate. Like, the media does porn well. Before we had eco-destruction porn, we had ruined porn or riot porn or poverty porn and on and on, you know? They know how to do doom and gloom really well. Um, so I don't mind the term, but I think what obviously that kind of coverage misses is it's always shorn of political and economic context. I mean, it's true that the mainstream media wasn't really covering climate change exacerbated natural disasters previously. The corporate media is finally starting to cover, sometimes in real time, uh, the impact of these climate change exacerbated natural disasters. But what they're still not doing is actually naming and identifying that climate change is underlying what's happening. And they're certainly not covering climate change in the political and economic context that they should be. So they're not really enabling any understanding and certainly not enabling action. Let me, let me, I don't, I don't want to say challenge that because I, I mean, I, I suppose I agree with it. But when you talk about like, you know, the corporate media, this or the media does that, first of all, like, of course, one of the primary functions of the news, before you even get to the news, just like when human beings want information about what's happening when there's a natural weather event, when there's a blackout in my city, I, I turn to Twitter like, hey, neighbors, fellow citizens, what areas are affected? What's going on? Like you're talking about like kind of a primary function of of news to let people know why did this happen? Who's affected? How bad is it? Uh, am I going to be affected? How can I help? I mean, there's kind of like a meat and potatoes news as a service thing that kicks in. And we understand like there's good pictures it's it's information that people desperately want to have and it's it's irrefutable this is happening right in front of me and and let's put a camera on it so that people who are not necessarily right here can see what's going to what's going to be hitting their house in an hour uh the complaint being that like each update on the coming hurricane or the weather event should end with and by the way though this specific event we can't irrefutably connect to climate change obviously the trend of the increasing rapidity and frequency of these events is is uh, obviously an impact of climate change as if you didn't know that like like what, what is the ideal version of this i mean just to push back a little bit like i i do think we have to ask why we see this kind of ultimately ultra pessimistic apocalyptic coverage coming from the mainstream media when it comes to climate change like that's the tenor generally of the coverage they provide for instance when you know the the landmark un climate report came out back in the fall uh you know which told us we have what a dozen years now 11 to turn the ship around to you know cut our emissions by 50 percent um the kind of coverage we saw was like, I remember New York Times front page cover was like this desolate apocalyptic scene, you know, with like a, a little boy playing um, 
in the the ruins of these like desiccated bones, right? Like, and I think that um, ultimately the the reason the mainstream media does this kind of coverage, it's based on adherence to status quo politics. They can more readily imagine and project scenarios of apocalypse than they can project a scenario in which you know. We simply start regulating corporations and hiking taxes on <laughs> hiking taxes on the wealthiest, right? Which which so happens Canadians also overwhelmingly support, but which the media also goes out of its way to not report. I mean, the kind of reporting I would like to see on on this stuff, like take what's happening in the Amazon right now, right? Mm-hmm. I know people love to hate this article, but do you remember the piece that Chris Arsenault did for the CBC? Remind me. You know how resource co- companies were chomping at the bit when Bolsonaro came to power? Refresh my memory. It was this piece basically just after Bolsonaro came to power in what was effectively a, a soft coup. And, um, you know, it gave this unvarnished uh, take on how resource companies were just chomping at the bit about the prospects of Bolsonaro being in power, right? Resource companies in Canada. Oh, he got killed for that piece. Like, oh, the, the, the bright side of this fascist taking power, Can- Canadian businesses could do really, really well, and everyone just jumped on it. Well, everyone jumped on it, but I actually think, I mean, Chris is a left-wing journalist. I thought what he was doing was sneaking through a clear-eyed analysis in the guise of business reporting about how the Canadian corporate elite was cheering and supporting the coup regime of Bolsonaro, right? And Annoyingly, in that case, most of the anger generated seemed to be directed not at the Canadian companies or the Trudeau government, which backed the coup, uh, but at the, you know, the journalists who did the story. And I actually think that's like that, that kind of reporting is what connects the burning forests of the Amazon to what's happening here in Canada, like unaccountable corporate power who are left to treat, you know, the atmosphere like it's sewage, like a sewage dump by friendly governments and are not ever scrutinized by uh, the media. Wow. All right. This is very interesting. You're suggesting that he was kind of almost like trolling us with facts with that story? Like, hey, if you just want straight news, here it is. If, if we're going to have a completely amoral concept of of business coverage, like, yeah, we're going to benefit by this Bolsonaro thug and his anti-environmentalist practices because we're in this business and don't pretend that we're not. And and uh, when everyone jumps on him, it's sort of like, hey, you can't argue with the facts. And that that that's a form of sensationalism because it's pushing people's angry button, but it's a different form of sensationalism than photos of people with like uh, desert hellscapes with uh, wind-torn bones uh, in some post-apocalyptic hell. You, you, you prefer the, that kind of uh, sensationalism. I mean, it's not, it's not sensational in the sense that it accurately reports how the political and business elite in this country approach a government like Bolsonaro's, right? I just think, I, I think it made people uncomfortable because they rarely expect that kind of reporting from CBC. But I think he did us a service, you know, by showing us exactly the kind of coverage we don't tend to get from the mainstream media. But like if that were if that were the kind of coverage we saw in the mainstream media on a regular basis, which, of course, we don't, because then the media wouldn't be serving their their function. We would see people up in arms about um, about the you know government's approach to climate change. Yeah, like some of this is resonating with me more than other parts. I mean, I feel like you can't say that the media is scaring the hell out of us irresponsibly with this doomsday shit because they're trying to promote the status quo. And I think a lot of this stuff gets attributed to to motives that are a bit more nefarious and sinister than they really are. When we get scientific reports telling us that we're, we're nearing a breaking point, somebody's job is to come up with a picture that's going to make that story interesting and get people to read that story. And so to visualize something like that, the shorthand for that, and we we deal in shorthand when we're writing headlines and picking pictures uh, for news stories, is um, 
apocalypse. The reality is probably more nuanced, uh, but it doesn't. It won't read. I just don't. I don't think that's true, Jesse. I think that I think that it's not nefarious to uh, assume that the elite media class in this country and elsewhere is completely enthralled to neoliberal ide- ideology, right? Which means they operate always in their reporting on the on the assumption that there's no fundamental alternative to our current like fossil fuel addicted hyper unregulated capitalist economy, right? And the fact is that the kind of reporting that we need to help people understand the kind of changes that need to happen in our society to deal with climate breakdown all falls well outside the narrow, acceptable political framework, right? Which emphasizes focusing on tinkering with market-based policies, like, you know, um, or put or putting the burden of action when it comes to climate change on personal consumption changes, right? Change your light bulbs, recycle better and more effectively, rather than, for instance, taking on the power of the fossil fuel corporations. When that UN climate report came out in the fall of 2008, the climate scientists who wrote it said that basically in order to turn things around, we need, quote, rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society, right? Sure. Like, the journalism that would cover the kind of and evoke, you know, in those kinds of shorthand terms that you're talking about, would I think be very compelling to people. I think people have a huge hunger for um, uh, forecasting scenarios of a much better, richer, more abundant life in Canada and elsewhere. But it's not nefarious to say that the broader ownership class, which also runs the media, has no interest in in, in showing people that. Yeah, I, I'm just not sure how your example illustrates that. Like, I don't know how scaring people about a Mad Max uh, uh, hellscape supports the neoliberal status quo. I, I will agree with you that if, if there was some sort of substantive policy-based coverage that could actually grab people, and, and, and I guess I would further agree with you that, like, I think that people want and are hungry for some kind of a productive dialogue about this that is beyond downloading the responsibility onto like, you know, your personal recycling choices or what product you buy and, and, you know, feeding it to greenwashing marketing. Besides this kind of like kind of sneaky, ironic um, story that you're praising, uh, I'm not sure if I'm describing it properly, but like that, that CBC story was a business story that I think was powerful because of the amorality that it highlighted. That, 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 that is a different thing than the policy-based solution coverage that, that you're suggesting. Is, is there like, a story like I, let's get back to our original concept here hurricane dorian there's the the usual satellite photos devastation is it going to hit florida if not we really we really don't care about bahamas as much as florida so is it going to hit florida there's all these kind of like impulses in the coverage that are kind of icky what's what's the right way to do that if we're not going to do the disaster porn thing and if we're not going to prioritize you know north american life like like i don't know what, what what is the right way to cover that i think people are hungry for information about the connections between these intensified natural disasters and the fact that there are corporate interests ultimately behind um, behind climate change right like i did this piece back in uh, 2016 when Fort McMurray got hit by the fire, right? And I wrote an article in which I said the arsonists of Fort McMurray have a name. Even environmental NGOs, I think, for reasons of social political etiquette, had not been making that connection. Um, and that really struck a chord. I'll bet it did. I'm, I'm sure people <laughs> were, were pretty... Up, uh, uh, at that moment, that was almost like a forbidden thing to say, was that, that climate change has a role to play in this. It was like a political taboo. But I think it, I think that political taboo is slowly loosening, certainly among the public, and among certain politicians. But in the corp, the corporate media, I still I still think hasn't caught up. You know, 
And I think it provides a real disservice to, to people. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Martin, it is your first time on CanadaLand Shortcuts, but maybe you know that we try to note things duly that have otherwise gone a little bit overlooked or might be getting overlooked, and uh, we call that feature duly noted. Honestly, I'm the type of person who, uh, as I was telling your producer, I read the transcripts of podcasts rather than listening to them, but I am, I am just enough aware of the duly noted segment. All right. Uh, the polite thing to do would be to pretend that you know everything about this show and you listen every week. But I will go first because I got a couple. I want to duly note this Kevin O'Leary thing. Saturday night at 1130, a couple weeks ago, and all the rich guys were on their boats watching the fireworks on this rich guy lake. And uh, he had this boat that he was kind of boasting about on Instagram. He's going to go out and rip it up on the lake on this. He calls it the bat boat. It's this powerful looking like wakeboarding vessel. And I mean to get your head around the accident, it wasn't reported for like days. I think, I think it happened Saturday night. It wasn't reported uh, until Tuesday by TMZ, the celebrity gossip site. And his boat was going fast enough that when it collided with this much bigger vessel, this 13 person boat, it, it went over the bigger boat, which, you know, uh, I'm just trying to figure out like, like, you know, a, you have to be going pretty fast to, to go over it and not just smash right into it. And B, like, was was the front of his boat up? It was going so fast. I don't. I'm not going to try to do the forensics of this. It's a terrible thing. Two people were Jesse. Clearly, you, clearly, you don't ride enough in like high end uh, luxury boats. Because yeah, when you, I mean, my understanding is is when you go that when you go as fast as he was probably going, 
the nose is like tipped way into the into the sky. That's how I picture it, which would also maybe explain why they didn't see this bigger boat. Right. I hope we will find out more about this in time. My interest in this is in the reporting. It was weird to me that it was reported not by the Canadian media. And the joke always in those last weekends of summer is that uh, we're not responsive because all the reporters are up at their cottages. Well, you know, that might have been a feature, not a bug in this case, but not, <laughs> no, uh, TMZ had it first. And the details were weird to me because the the version that we got and, and the one that actually ultimately after TMZ went first, the Canadian media basically just repeated O'Leary's statement. And O'Leary's statement contained a few things that were odd. Like he was saying like, look, I was a passenger uh, and the other boat didn't have its navigation lights on and the other boat fled the scene. But I don't want to get in the way of the police investigation, so I'm not going to say anything else <laughs> except for those things, right? <laughs> now, we later find out from the OPP that both boats fled the scene. And fleeing the scene is maybe not the right word to use because that implies like a crime. You know, it's, a, it's, it's against the law to flee the scene of an accident on a highway. But, of course, when you're on like some private lake, like they're supposed to go get help on, on shore. And that's what both boats did. To omit the fact that he also left the scene of the accident and to kind of like accuse the other boat of fleeing the scene – it became clear that there was some level of spin in his messaging from the start. And then there's conflicting accounts because he's saying that this other boat doesn't didn't have its navigation lights on. And uh, there are sources TMZ has and others from this other boat saying, no, that's not true. And now the police have some videotape that will hopefully clear that up. It's also like, who's the messaging coming from? Like, he didn't say this directly, but his spokesperson said... O'Leary's wife passed a DUI test that suggests that she was the driver. And I don't know how long after the event that she was tested. I don't know if he was tested as well. We don't know a lot about this. And what I'm duly noting, I suppose, is the incuriosity of the Canadian media. Like I've been taking heat like, oh, Jesse, you're trying to conjure up a conspiracy theory. I have no idea what happened. Um, or, or, or that I shouldn't be dinging the Canadian media for being behind this story, which, which, you know, page six had new details that he, he after his first lawyer, his general counsel said, oh, he was a passenger. In my opinion, he doesn't need a lawyer for this. You don't need a lawyer if you're a passenger in an accident. And then page six out of the States, they report that he's hired Brian Greenspan, who's like one of the most high powered criminal lawyers in Canada. And then his spokesperson denies this. Huh. And, and people are saying, see, Jesse, that's what you get for getting your news from page six. It turns out not to be true. Meanwhile, Brian Greenspan isn't returning anyone's calls when people are saying, well, did he hire you or didn't he? Like maybe did you did, did O'Leary hire him for his wife? We don't know. There's so much we don't know. And it frustrates me when this is one of the few celebrities we have in Canada. And he ran to be the leader of the conservative party. Like this is news. And I think that there is at least enough reason to believe that there might be something a lot more to this going on than what we've been told. You would you would hope for a rabid media, a, a curious media, an aggressive media in a case like this, because frankly, the Canadian media has a bad record of letting Ill, wealthy elite people get away with stuff and spin the news to their benefit. And wait, and someone died, right? Where, where you you didn't? I don't think you emphasized that enough. Two people. Two people died. Were they killed immediately? Like on impact? One was killed upon impact, and then a mother of three died, I, I think, the next day or, or, or two days later. Uh, they kept her on life support because she was an organ donor. This is terrible. This is a terrible tragedy. And, of course, no one wanted this to happen. But I think we need to know what happened. And and I don't know. I, 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 I know there are reporters on this who are frustrated to hear me complain like this because they very much want to know what happened. But, you know... There were like, again, there were 13 people on, on the boat that got hit, 11 of whom are still alive. Like, 
we we can't establish whether the lights were on on this bigger boat or not. Du- duly noted, Jesse. Thank you. What do you have? Do you have, you have something to duly note for us? I do. Um, and it actually kind of uh, naturally follows on our this, the conversation in the first segment. I think the Canadian media has completely missed how the climate plan that Bernie Sanders released just a little over a week ago has totally blown up the tightly constrained parameters of the debate about the climate crisis. I don't know if you followed it at all. I, I didn't. So it, it, it is a Green New Deal style plan that would plow $17 trillion into decarbonizing the economy by 2050. It would involve a government-led transition that would create 20 million green jobs, tw- you know, good unionized jobs. It provide, would provide free electricity from publicly owned companies. It, it would rebuild sustainable agriculture. You know, more than just being big and bold, it actually unleashes uh, moral anger at the corporate elite who have been trashing the planet. It rightly says that oil executives are not only responsible, but should be criminally prosecuted. And we've seen, like, following his lead, other Democratic candidates put forward these epically ambitious plans that for the first time really begin to address the scale and urgency of the of, of the kind of climate action we need you know but you you wouldn't know that if you read the news in Canada you know he here the debate over how to deal with the climate crisis is catastrophically narrow the choice we're presented with is between like climate denying pipeline loving conservatives and climate posturing pipeline loving liberals you know most of the debate's been around the carbon tax, you know, which we're told is this kind of like litmus test for climate action bravery. And there's been nothing in the corporate media here in Canada about how the carbon tax, apart from being woefully insufficient on its own, is actually the preferred strategy of big oil, who was waiting for years for a prime minister like Justin Trudeau, who could brandish it as a kind of green fig leaf to cover for expanded tar sands production. Or, you know, we, we get like reports about the latest inanity from the climate troglodytes in the Conservative Party. Last week, we had Joe Oliver, you know, talking about how... Good news. Good news for Canada. Climate change is going to be beneficial for Canada, right? Yeah. And this week, we're stuck debating how like, you know, the blowhard far right wing leader of the People's Party, Maxime Bernier, is attacking a 16-year-old climate activist for having autism. It gives a whole new meaning to you know, the meanwhile in Canada trope. I mean, we're, we're, we're right to pile on Maxime Bernier for attacking a teenager. I, I think that that was a, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a distraction. I understand that there are bigger things to talk about, but my God, he deserves every bit of scorn that was heaped upon him. Yeah, of course he should, but it's really missing the focus we could be paying on what we actually need to do to deal with this like existential crisis. We're just being put to utter shame by what's happening down south, which totally flips the usual kind of moral superiority we feel about politics in Canada. Duly noted. One last one from my from my, my week off. Uh, this, this bubbled up from the National Post. This story, my God. Okay, headline in the National Post. Germany plans to strip Syrians who go home on holiday of their refugee status. And it was attributed to a, uh, a New York Times reporter named Melissa Eddy because the National Post subscribes to the New York Times wire service, okay? So, you know, they can pick which which New York Times wire stories to, 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 to pick up and publish in the Post. And, of course, the National Post is going to love this story about these, these fraudulent Syrian refugees. I mean, why would you be a Syrian refugee? It's great there. They go home on vacation, for God's sake, and Germany is going to get tough on them and strip them of their refugee status if they go back 
on vacation. So a reader of the Post is checking this out, a reader named Angus McAllister, and he happens to know the work of Melissa Eddy, the New York Times reporter based in Berlin, who this is attributed to. And he's reading this piece, and he comes across a passage where there's sourcing attributed to Breitbart. According to Breitbart, reports as early as 2016 showed that asylum seekers from Syria, Afghanistan, and Lebanon had been using German taxpayer cash to fund vacations in their home countries. And that just did not smell right to Angus McAllister. Like, why is why is this New York Times reporter referencing Breitbart? He emails Melissa Eddy, the New York Times reporter, and she confirms. She goes, thank you for pointing this out. I did not write that part. And uh, they're breaking the terms of, of the syndication deal. And I'm going to get the New York Times to complain about this. Like, they're putting Breitbart shit under my name. And, uh, and, and thank you for helping out. We've gotten it retracted. They did not really retract it. That's not actually what the National Post did. What the National Post did was they changed the attribution. Like, oh shit, we've, we've got this all attributed to this New York Times reporter and she didn't write the Breitbart stuff, which that's a big no-no. They just changed the attribution, as far as I can tell, from New York Times wire service to the National Post wire service. So now they've gone from falsely attributing writing to this reporter to plagiarizing the reporter because when they shift the attribution to their own wire service, most of the copy is still the stuff that she wrote as far as I can tell. And the reason why I'm saying as far as I can tell is there's no transparency. The National Post and I think all of Post Media has de-indexed themselves from the Wayback Machine so you can't go look at old versions of the article and they don't actually explain changes. Like they're, they're, I don't know what their corrections policy is. The first thing they did by changing the attribution happened without any kind of notation whatsoever. And then after I tweeted that they did this, and that went like quite widely viral, they removed the Breitbart stuff and they added a little, like, I don't even know if you can call it a correction. The end of the story says, this item has been changed to remove potentially questionable content added to the story in error. And they also wiped hundreds of comments from the story. There's no, of course, public editor at the Post Media. Post Media. There's there's no explanation. Uh, there was no apology to Melissa. Like the reader is left completely in the dark. And a lot of people are like, "Wow, this is like the most insidious form of fake news." It's one thing to have fake news from you know Breitbart or some you know faux news channel, but to attribute this stuff to whitewash Breitbart under the byline of the New York Times and run it in the, in the National Post, this is truly conservative media run amok. I, I have to say, I don't think that there was any any sinister plan behind it. I, I would be very surprised if this was anything more than an understaffed summer newsroom at an understaffed newspaper where somebody probably had to fill some space for the print version and they just, you know, or they had to embellish this. I don't know what, but like probably anyone who knew the rules wouldn't do this. You know, this was incompetence. And then it was... It was like something was on fire, so how do we put out the fire? Let's throw gasoline on it. You know, and, and this stuff happens, and hundreds of thousands of people read my tweet about it, like 400,000 people, and, and the Post still does not feel like they owe anyone an explanation. It, it, it's just something that happened, and then it's invisible, and then hopefully people will forget about it tomorrow. So I wanted to, to duly note it. It's incompetence with the backdrop of this this infiltration of the conservative media by far right-wing operators. Totally. It's it's I'm not going to say it's an honest mistake cuz it's sort of like the butcher shop that like no one was trying to rip you off, but whenever they get the change wrong, it always favors them, you know? Right, like, right, right, right. It's like that. It's like, you know, the mistake will always be a conservative agenda a mistake, but I but I do think it was just a mistake. And I, and I just think they need, like, a news organization has to have a process of accounting for its mistakes. Duly noted. 
Kirkland. Now, you've stepped up as a leader on the world stage in the fight against climate change. How does the Trans Mountain Pipeline fit mm -hmm. into that vision? I feel like it's pulling in two different directions. It's like me saying, but it, I'm going to lose weight by eating more Kit Kats. No. And I love Kit Kats. You guys are this amazing, progressive country that's almost like the civilization from the future. You guys are like Wakanda. I'm like 116th Malaysia. Sure. I know. Oh, there you have it. The, the guy's Malaysian. Leave him alone. Desmond Cole had a tweet about that. Like, white people, why do you do this? What, what, is, the, what, is, the, what is this Elizabeth Warren math thing, uh, as, as Hassan put it? I don't think Justin Trudeau did too well there. And, you know, Justin Ling pointed out that was like his, his first interview in a long time. Uh, we later found that he gave one to La Presse. So I think it's like, like there's an election coming up. Justin Trudeau is not giving interviews to English language media, uh, but I guess he felt like he, he would, you know, this is like, this is on Netflix, it's American, it's funny, and it'll be fun. And it, I don't think it worked out for him. Martin, you have kind of a connection to this to this uh, episode of the Patriot Act, don't you? I do. I mean, I mean, first of all, I, don't, I really don't know what Trudeau's strategists were thinking. My hunch is perhaps they thought that it, the episode would go like, most of the U.S. liberal media coverage of Canada, but I mean, who knows? Yeah, there's this, there's a small connection, which is that the writer of the show or the co-writer of the show was actually is actually a left wing Canadian comedian from Toronto, and they drew a bit from my uh, upcoming book uh, when they were doing their research. So it was definitely pleasing to see how the episode turned out. Scott Vrooman, who uh, has been on Canada Land before, and actually we. Uh... We worked with him in, in, in publishing a bunch of videos he made the last election. Local Boy Makes Good. He's now writing for the Patriot Act for Netflix. And he, he was one of the writers of that episode. And then on Twitter, he explicitly said that your book was uh, an inspiration for him. It was really funny. I mean, the episode really wasn't an American comedy show doing Canada. It was like the, the best that the Canadian uh, independent media has to offer laundered through Patriot Act. And I actually think that speaks to like how left-wing writers and journalists in Canada don't really have access to media outlets here for that kind of criticism of the government. So we end up writing in The Guardian or The Washington Post, or in this case, a U.S. comedy show. That's a, that's a really good point. I mean, like, if you're just going to kind of distill the stuff, be like, okay, Trudeau's got this image. It's been glorified. Is it true? And if it's not true, where 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 are the hypocrisies? And it has to do with the arms dealing. And it has to do with the environment. And it has to do with what's going on in Quebec. Uh, you, you put those things to him. And what I love about that episode, besides the fact that it was just very witty and it was very slickly produced, is that you got to see him sit there and squirm and actually answer to these things, which we do not get to see him do in, in the Canadian media. Like, we're we're four years in and we don't get to see Trudeau answer to the ways in which reality contradicts his image. No, no. We see a lot of glad handing kind of interviews by sorts like Paul Wells. I think the other reason that the people were so receptive and so enjoyed this, that episode of, of Patriot Act was that it totally breaks with the norm of U.S. liberal media coverage of Canada, which kind of operates on this like blinkered, mutually self-serving basis. Canadian liberals love to believe that Canada is the country that the American liberal media imagines it to be. And then the American liberal media loves to believe that Canada is the country America could be, you know, if everyone were only as mature and reasonable as them. It's a useful device. It's a tool, you know, because it's like you want to be able to say, look, it's possible. It's a tool, but it's like what they obscure is that you only get to be Canada 
with struggles waged by socialist, unionist, feminist, indigenous peoples. And that 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 gets obscured in the in the in, in that depiction of how Canada has become, in their view, this like, you know, idealized, conflict free, civilized society that solved most of their pressing social problems. It was such a break with that that norm. That's one of the reasons why people got so excited. Yeah, I mean, it took them a, a minute, and they had to hire a really smart Canadian. But uh, but the American media has uh, kind of caught up to the truth of this and lapped us. It was good satire, but it was also kind of good journalism. And a lot of people have been pointing out, like, why did we need this Netflix show to have such a tough accountability interview for our prime minister? I think that's a damn good question. Well, I mean, who would who would do it in the Canadian media, right? Who has access to him? Yeah, I think it's it's the access question. I certainly didn't get access to him, though, though I, I made repeated efforts. You wrote a book about Trudeau, and, and he would not give you an interview. No. So, and then, the you know, the, the, the book that's come out by Aaron Weary on, um, on Trudeau benefited from much uh, access to, to Trudeau. Martin, your book gives a different view of things, and one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that we have the honor and privilege of, of printing an excerpt from it on the Canada Land website, and it's a, it's a like a really revealing bit of reporting you've got there about uh, Jerry Butt's tenure at the World Wildlife Foundation and their attitude and their policies on climate change and how that, like, as you tell it, anticipated and predicted the difference between the image and the reality of the Trudeau administration. Um, so uh, people should read that. It's, uh, it's, it's on our site right now. Thanks for, uh, thanks for, thanks for exerting it, man. Yeah, no, it's, it's our pleasure to have it. I know that we weren't your first pick and I don't hold it against you. I, I, I am aware that a much larger mainstream news source was initially very interested in exerting your book and then chickened out completely. So I'm happy to, uh, to step up where they backed off. People, go read this chapter of Martin's book on our website. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send us. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Martin, where can people find you? On Twitter and frequently and uh, at the www.trudeauformula.com. Okay, our website is canadalandshow.com. Again, Martin's book is exerted there. There's also a new episode of Oppo, where tough questions are asked about housing uh, to, to the employment minister, Patty Hajdu, by Justin Link. Listen, the, the Oppo has just gone weekly uh, in the run-up to the election, and uh, the show's terrific. It's the show you should be listening to to keep on top of the coming election. And Canada Land Commons is going to be back with a whole new season next week. I don't think we've announced what it is yet, so I'm not going to say. Um, but it's just been terrific in, in the new iterations that Archie and Jordan have been uh, putting out, and, and they're relaunching it once again next week. So go subscribe to that show. Check it out. This episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, uh, if you like our podcasts, if our news stories and everything else that we publish uh, are valuable to you and the things that you learn uh, are, are valuable to you, know that the only way this all happens is because people support us at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. And that's where you can help us out. Please do. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures 
And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.